I was, uh, I was thinking today about Easter, and I know, right? Profound. Um, and I was thinking about how uh, even last week, Joe O said he was preaching, and he's like, yeah, I was talking to, to Ryan and asking him if I was going to spoil any of the surprise of Easter Sunday by preaching on certain passages and whatnot. And I basically gave him the comment, like, I feel like every day's Easter, you know, like we're living in the reality of Jesus's resurrection every day of our life. But there's something about Easter Sunday. And so I'm actually going to like slightly turn from my statement last week. I love, I'm starting to more love the days where it's, you know, it's a day set up, set aside for remembrance of the most important things. You know, and, and it's not religious to set up a day, set apart as holy, and to just fixate on this amazing thing that he's risen, that he's, he's alive, that death couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. The devil tried his best, probably thought at one point that he killed the Son of God and did it. And then three days later, three days later. And it's good for us, it's even biblical for us to stop and have these days where you dress a little nicer, you get up and you do something different. You know, we did the thing with our kids, we were doing Easter eggs today, and we were trying to make it like, a kind of like pagan ritual, but we were trying to like make it holy, you know, like this represents this and it's the tomb opening and Suki made these little like fuzz balls with eyes on them. She's like, this is the angel that was in the tomb that was like, you know, but it was like these rituals that come every week, every year that we get to stop and we get to come and we get to go, man, Jesus, like this changes everything. This is worthy of a day just to fixate and focus and celebrate together and high-five one another and feast together and make a big deal out of it in a way that's different than we make a big deal out of it every day. Because we should make a big deal out of it every day, but that doesn't mean we can't make an extra big deal out of it today. And so, mark my words, I'm going to create traditions for my family and my friends around today going forward. That it'll be something that's set aside that when my kids are older, they'll say, you know what Easter was like for me? It was like this. And we'd do this, and we'd celebrate Jesus in these ways. And it was, it'll be this landmark day in the year that they'll remember forever. And if you don't have kids, you don't have a family, make it with your friends. I said this before, we should have feasts that we've all dedicated from times in our life where the Lord has shown up, just like the Jews did. The Jews had these moments in their, in, in their geography and in their years where they'd stop and they'd have feasts or they'd come, aside, come along some rock formation and the kids would be like, why is there a big pile of rocks there, dad, mom? And they'd say, oh, let me tell you, this was a very special place. This is where the Red Sea split open and we got to the other side. And the, the Lord did a marvelous work and it was passed on through the generations. Why don't... We set up feasts for stuff in our life. I remember that the day, the day the Lord intersected me in the middle of a keg party and said, 
Walk away from that stuff. That's not life-giving. I remember the other day when I, I was at this conference and the Lord put his spirit in me in this extra special, profound way where I just started loving people, enjoying worship, dying for his word. All of these like landmark moments in my life that I need to set aside and I need to have as special moments. And so if you're a member of this church, I'm going to get pretty darn close to mandating that you like set up feasts in your year because one, I want to feast with you. I want to feast with you. I want to celebrate the moments that God had victory in your life. I want them to be prophetic words to me that when I go, oh, what are we celebrating with this like awesome meal? And you go, let me tell you what God did in my life. On this day, 10 years ago, he changed everything. And then a little part of it becomes mine. And we're just feasting together and doing life together in the most important ways. And so these days are special. And let's make personal ones too. So how about this? I'll cook for the first person who sets a feast for themselves. <laughs> you can have it at my place. We'll cook. <laughs> Do you already make one? And we'll do it up. And we'll do it up. All right. That was a little appetizer to the sermon. All right, here we go. So we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 28, 1 to 10. Uh, do we have any first-timers in here never been with us ever before? No? Yay, one. All right, cool. There's others. You're not alone. Believe me. <laughs> you're just the one with courage. Um, just kidding. Uh, if this is your first time, I want to welcome you, myself, Ryan Longfield, and my wife, Suki Longfield, are the head pastors of the church, but we're just glad you're here. Happy Easter to you, and uh, we love getting to spend this day with you, and uh, we hope you're blessed with us. We really do. So we've been going through the book of Matthew. I'm going to jump a few chapters and get to the end where we talk about Easter Sunday, and, uh, and, and we'll get into some of the things that we can revel in and take out of this. So Matthew chapter 28, 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, approaching, rolled back the stone, approached, rolled back the stone, and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were shaken with fear of him and, began, and became like a dead man. Then the angel said to the woman in reply, Do not be afraid. I know you are seeking Jesus, the crucified. He's not here, for he has been raised, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has, ra he has been raised from the dead, and he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then they went quickly from the tomb, fearful yet overjoyed, and ran to announce this to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on their way and greeted them. They approached, embraced his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So 
So let's get into this story a little bit. So first of all, we see that it's the Sabbath day. So on Good Friday, right, the, the, the crucifixion happens. And it's really significant that the resurrection follows the Sabbath day. If you think about generally what the Sabbath day was for the Jews, if you think about the seven days of creation, that the last day of creation was the Sabbath day, that they declared it a day of rest. And it wasn't just a day of rest where you rest your physical body. What it was was a day of rest in the sense that the finished work of God had been done. God did the heavy lifting. God spent six days creating the earth and, and then placed man and woman in the garden to enjoy it. And on the seventh day said, let's make a day where we just hang out and we rest in the finished work of God. And so that's the usual Sabbath day for the Jew. They don't work. They just celebrate God and his finished work. It's a day set aside to just sit around and be like, man, do you remember this in our lives? Do you remember this? A day of remembrance of his goodness. On this particular one, however, you got to remember how brutal this would be for his disciples. They were utterly convinced that this was the one who was going to overturn the Roman government and set up a kingdom like David's, their forefathers, and all of their oppression, all of their physical angst, all of their worries about what would go, all of their lack of freedom in certain area of life, all of that stuff would be reversed because of this man. And they gave up everything to follow him for three years. They left their jobs, they left their families, they left their friends, their homes, and they've been traveling around with this guy in slightly uncomfortable situations constantly, convinced that this was the guy. And then they watch him die a brutal death and this is the day where they're not allowed to work, not allowed to watch media, not allowed to read books, not allowed to do any of the distractions. They just have to sit in it. Holy Friday for the disciples and the Marys that we see here would have been brutal. It would have been brutal. I mean, I can't even imagine the level of disappointment, the level of confusion, the level of like, I just don't get it. I do not get it. And so then we see, we see the Marys, and it says, they came to see the tomb. I wonder if the wording there is specific enough that they didn't come because Jesus had said that he would rise on the third day. I wonder if they came to actually see the tomb. You know, like, I wonder if they were that disheartened. I wonder if they didn't have that much faith. They, they, they came to see the tomb. They came to see the place where their God had died, where the Messiah had died. And then we see this glorious thing where an earthquake happens, and this fierce angel is sitting on top of the tombstone with it wide open, and it says he has the appearance of lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. These tough, burly guards Roman soldiers are standing at the front of it, and they're laying down prostrate, terrified, because this angel is sitting on top of this stone. I got to imagine that this is like the day of glory for this angel, <laughs> right? Like, what better job do you get than this? Like, not just the terrifying of the Roman soldiers, but like getting to be the first one 
to announce he is risen. Crazy, right? And we see in the Bible that, that angel get, angels, angels get like missions and like commissioned to do stuff just like us. So I don't know what this dude did to get this one, but this guy is like, he's loving this mission, right? He's sitting there, he's glowing like lightning. And they, and they walk up and he says, he's been raised. And all of a sudden for them, everything changes. Everything changes. And you can, you can take the story of the disciples and you can picture how disappointed they would be. And it's just like, they're, they're asking questions like, do I go back to fishing? Do I, like, what's our hope? Is there any meaning in this life? Like yesterday, I thought there was tons of meaning. Now what's, what's the meaning? The guy's dead. He's gone. He died. He actually died. And as I was, as I was pondering this, you know, as we celebrate Easter Sunday, as we celebrate this line that the angel comes and he says, he is risen, it's power-packed with stuff. The first one is, the fact that he is risen means everything in terms of what your life means or doesn't mean. Paul talks about this in the New Testament. He says, if Jesus isn't risen, we're the people that should be pitied the most. And why does he say that? Because every day of Paul's life, he's living for Jesus. Every day of Paul's life, he's living on the base of this reality that this world is not the most important thing. See, what we see in the cross of Christ is that Jesus lived a tough life, and he died a very tough death. But there are statements that says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, which means he was not living for this world. Jesus was not living for this world. And if we have one that's gone before us, who's shown us the ultimate will of God, that is to raise the righteous from the dead, then he's inviting us by that example as an invitation to live lives where this world is not what we're living for. So on Easter Sunday, there's this huge challenge in there that's like, Jesus set this example where he just flipped the paradigm around where it's so common to eat, drink, be merry, have fun, maximize life, do everything you can to, to, to live the best possible life you can. And if you look at the culture we live in right now, there's this pull for us to live that way. There's this constant pull that's like, live for this life. Get the best job you possibly can so that you can make the most money that you possibly can so that you can have the freedoms to do whatever you want in this life and you can go and you can eat, drink, and you can be merry and you can just maximize it. Life is short. Live well. And if there's anything that the resurrection, resurrection speaks, it's that is a foolish way to think about your life. If there's anything the resurrection of Jesus speaks, it's that, 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 that is utterly foolish. Because think about it this way. There's no resurrection where there's no death. Jesus' resurrection is glorious because of the way he lived his life. The reason why he was raised from the dead is because he lay, lived a life surrendered to God. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus is this massive statement to the world you can trust God 
with the life dedicated live to him. You can trust him. You can trust him that even if it doesn't look like you think it might look down here, it's not the end. That death is not the end. As bad as it gets down here. I'm all for living an amazingly awesome, fruitful life. I love my life. I do not live every day where I feel like I'm, you know, muscling myself to just have some joy. That is like the last way that I lived. But if that's the way I lived every day of my life, the resurrection would say that it's still worth it. And we need to, I'm speaking to myself here too, we need to get this in us. Living the cross of Christ every day so that we can savor the moments of his resurrection, that's kind of the whole deal. That we're not living for ourselves down here, but we have to actively choose in every day where it's almost like we need a moment where we're laying in bed before we even put our feet on the ground and we go, okay, here's another day. If it's a grace one, praise God. If it's a brutal one, but it's brutal because I'm serving him, praise him. There is one day where this will all be worth it. And there's something in us that just witnesses with eternal life. Even people who don't know God, when you see death, you go, that is wrong. That is wrong. There's something in you that sees what God sees that says, I never intended anybody to die. It was never God's intention for anybody to die. There's this thing of eternity that just lives inside of us that, that, that knows there's something wrong with death and it shouldn't be this way. And it's like, our, it's like our, our created being, our inner man is just shouting out, telling us like, live for eternity. Don't live for this life. Live as if you're gonna live forever. Because if you dedicate your life just like Jesus did, then he comes, becomes the firstborn of all creation. And so Easter is what Easter is because we look at the life that Jesus lived, that he fully laid it down to God. And what Easter screams is that there's always victory in surrender to God. There cannot be victory when there's surrender to God. The other thing, verse 6, when it says... He's been raised, says, is that he's coming again. He's alive. He's not dead. He's alive. And when you think about that, there are so many things in this life where the will of God is either done or not done based upon what you do. See, he's given us the power to either live in a way that brings his kingdom or doesn't, right? Like, I can choose to steward my finances in a way where I bless the poor. I can choose to steward my finances in a way that scream that I'm not gripped by money. I can choose to live in my home in a way where people know that I welcome the outsider. I can choose to go to work and pick out the person that is the most rejected in the entire office and make it my determination to love that person better than anybody else in the office. I can do that every day. 
And as I do those things, the kingdom comes in those areas. And the will of God is done in those areas. This, however, is one of those where no matter what you and I do, there's a truth on the other side that he's coming back. That he's coming back. We can live righteous lives or we can live wicked lives. We can pray all day or we can never pray again. We can vote for his coming or we can vote for his not coming. It actually don't matter. There's some things that are in the category of he's God, his will is going to happen, and this isn't inevitable. There was nothing that sin or the Romans or the Jews voting, kill that guy, kill that guy, crucify him, crucify him, that was going to keep him in that grave. And his second coming is the same as his first coming. He's coming, and he will triumph over the rest of sin, death, and the grave in a way that brings freedom to all who call upon the name of the Lord, and nobody can do anything about that. And it's only because he was risen the first time that we can say that with full conviction, that when we're living our lives of sacrifice, when we're living our lives laid down in surrender to God, when we're putting to death the flesh every day of our lives so that we can live in the Spirit, it's because of the first resurrection that we can say it's going to be worth it in the second resurrection. It's because of the first resurrection that we can stand here and say, when he comes again, I'm going to be caught up with that cloud first. <laughs> I'm beating all y'all. I'm going to be like, how'd you get up here so fast? I've been waiting. I've been waiting. He is coming with the clouds. Verse 6. The other thing that the resurrection screams is written here is the angel says, he was raised from the dead just as he said. Just as he said. The angel comes down with this glorious message. Part of that message is, he's raised from the dead, just as he said. Yeah. <laughs> In the death and the resurrection of Christ, the ultimate promise was fulfilled. The ultimate promise was fulfilled, that he's going to rip the sting out of death. He's going to eliminate the power of sin over people's lives. And he's going to reconcile a people back to God. It's built into the Old Testament covenants, and it's what Jesus preached about when he was on earth. It's the, the oldest of God's promises, and he fulfills it in the death and the resurrection. The reason why that's so awesome is because we can look into his book, and we can look into his words that he gives us and his promises, and we can say, well, if you fulfilled that one, then you're going to fulfill all the other ones. That's a huge deal. Can you imagine if he had promised to raise from the dead three days later and done all of this cool stuff in life, and then he doesn't? Can you trust him in anything that he said? So all of the promises of God hang on this resurrection moment, and the reason why the Bible is the most popular-selling, best-seller book of all time, and is every year, <laughs> probably since the printing press, Maybe before, they're like writing them on scrolls, like so. Is because it's chocked full of promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus. The reason why you can get a prophetic word from your friend who hears from the Lord 
and stand on that guy is because he was risen. The reason why you can read Psalm 23 and meditate on it and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even if I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil, for he is with me. The reason why you can, you can stand on that, the reason why you can get that in your being, into the core of you, and live out of it every day of your life is because he is risen. That all the promises in him are yes and amen because he is risen. He declared once and for all that he will give, he will, he will fulfill every word that he's ever spoken. My favorite part of this entire passage is found in verse 9. It says, Jesus met them on the way. There's so many reasons why I love this. Let me share a couple of them with you. One, it said for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Imagine how joyful he was in this moment to reveal himself to these women who absolutely adored him. Like, get into the mind of Jesus in this. How long has he been waiting to triumph in this way that he can come back in this moment? And what did he endure? PB was talking about at, at the wedding yesterday of Chris and Christine how there's this joy on the other side of suffering that can't be found without the suffering. Like, think of the joy he had after the ultimate suffering. He's on, that, he's on that cross, just like taking it, and just like, the joy set before me. I can see it. I can see them. I can see them on Sunday. And then he has this moment where it feels like he almost deviates from his plan. There's so many reasons why these two women should not be the two that he first pictured, like he first reveals himself to. In the culture of that day, women couldn't even be a witness in a court case. Yeah, boo is right. And Jesus was saying boo too by making them the first two that he shows up to. That's crazy. He entrusts the most important message of all of history to run to his 12 with two women that are supposed to, by the cultural standard, not have any business carrying any kind of news that's important. And he gives it to them. And he says, hey, go tell my brothers. Like, check this out. They get to hear the news from Jesus, from this crazy, I'm sorry, from this crazy angel, and then see Jesus right afterwards. The 12, the 11 disciples... They hear it first from them. Talk about a lofty role. Like the angel got the privilege of carrying that message. These two women get the privilege of carrying this message to the disciples, to the who's who at the, at the time, right? And I almost get the feeling like Jesus kind of like, he couldn't take it anymore. Like the angel comes down and he's like, all right, like I guess... The Father gave you this role, so I'd probably, like, kind of want to do it myself, but, okay, you get to go, lightning angel, and go sit on that rock. And, like, like the moment after this guy gets to fulfill his, like, most awesome thing in all of history, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he shows up to these two women, and it's almost like I get the feeling, like, there's so much joy in him that he can't even stand it anymore. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and this is his moment where he comes, and he's like, hey, greetings. Right? 
greetings. And they just fall and grab his ankles and they just start worshiping him. What an amazing moment. The risen Christ, right? The first two grab hold of him. It says they grab hold of his ankles and they just worship him. What an amazing moment. And imagine, if you will, we, I think we can kind of get there with the, with the women, but imagine Jesus, for the joy set before him, he's just standing there and he's like, yes, right here, it's all worth it. And then at the end, I love this part. It says, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. You guys can fact check me, or you can, maybe somebody on podcast will catch me in this. But the thing that struck about, me, uh, struck about it to me today is, I don't think that the Lord ever called his disciples brothers in this direct of a manner before this moment. I tried to do a word search today to find, had he ever said, like, brothers before? And I couldn't find it. At the, end of jo- at the end of John, he says, hey, I no longer call you disciples, I call you friends. Right? So there's this clear, like, this transition thing of, like, disciples just do what they're told, they're constantly taught, and they don't really know kind of the why behind things. I'm calling you friends now because I've let you behind the curtain. I don't know if this is, like, you know, I don't know. But there's something powerful in this that he says, go tell my brothers. Brother is, brother is different. Brother is like a, you know, friends you, like, choose into, and there's something powerful about that. But, like, brother, there's a, there's a family connection that's different and unbreakable in a way that just can't be reproduced by anybody else, right? Like, we talk to our girls sometimes, and we say, hey, girls, did you know that you're the only people in the world that have mommy and daddy as your mommy and daddy? Like, they, those two have that in common with each other that nobody else does. It's this special, like, holy, sanctified thing where I get the feeling where Jesus comes in, he's like, he's like, go tell my brothers, the ones that have the same father as me, the ones that have the same inheritance as me. See, family like this, when, when he says brothers, all of a sudden it moves into the, the realm of inheritance. And I wonder if he kind of reserved this direct of a statement post-resurrection because he's challenging them now to think of them as, as full participants in the inheritance. He is risen. That's part of the inheritance. Forever to sit in the, in the inhabitant of God, in the place of God, in the home of God. He told them, I'm going from here and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then he comes down and he says something like brother where he's like, hey, I've got a home for you that's part of your inheritance that you can live this life and you can stake your whole life on it. Like you're going to participate in what just happened with me. 
I feel like that's captured in this brother thing. And it's certainly captured in the resurrection because other parts in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus being the firstborn amongst the brethren, the firstborn amongst creation. And all of it ties into the inheritance that he gives because of this act. The idea of grace itself is the riches of God at the expense of Christ. That we get what he deserved because he took what we deserved. And so when I say that we get to participate in the inheritance of Christ, this isn't a prideful, boastful statement. You did nothing to do it, and I didn't do anything to do it either. We're inheritance. We're brought into the family of God because of what Christ did, and we're given this glorious promise of this amazing future where it's like, yeah, if you die, awesome. You get to meet Jesus. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. He strips the power right out of death because you have the same inheritance as Jesus because of what he did. It starts with resurrection, and it continues with an eternity with God where you get to serve him and worship him and we get to be together and we get to get rid of our insecurities and we get to get rid of all the fear of man and we get to get rid of anything that could ever pull on us in any kind of way that's not exactly how he intended you to be. All of it stripped away. Every part of your identity that's fractured and hurt from this world in a moment is healed as you stare into the face of Jesus and you become like him as you look at him. The resurrection is awesome because of what we're resurrected into. If we are resurrected into redoing this one all over again, gosh, I don't, you know, it'd still be at his will, so I'd still sign up for it, but, like, I like this one much better. The resurrection isn't something where it's just like, oh, yeah, cool, Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. It's like, no, 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 no. He resurrected you unto the most glorious future that you could ever, 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 ever imagine and beyond that and beyond that. The reason why Easter is so amazing is, yes, there was a day of horrible crucifixion. Yes, there was a day of confusion and just brutal for the disciples. But then there was this day. Then there was this day where all of the promises of God became yes and amen because the Son of God was risen, proved exactly who he said he was, is who he was, and the disciples could stake the rest of their life on his promises forevermore, knowing that they had this as their destination, knowing that they had eternity as the place that they would spend with God forevermore, that this life is just a blip. So, man, Let's celebrate Easter. I mean, like, let's celebrate Easter. Let's, like, really celebrate Easter. You go to a Warriors game, I plan to act like the fool at the next Warriors game, right? Because I love it, right? It's my team. I get into it. I'm, like, in a Durant jersey and, like, you know, going crazy. And we had an ARC party last year when they beat OKC. My house, the roof was going to come off the place. Do you remember that? It was crazy. Oh, yeah, and the slow-mo, there was a slow-mo video around it. What's my point? 
How could we possibly on Easter Sunday during worship being like, awesome. <laughs> there should be like slow-mo videos that are necessary in this place. Because we're so acting the fool. Like, he is risen. It means everything is different. Everything has changed. Everything has changed because he's risen. Give yourself permission today of all days to act the fool for Christ. He's worth it. It's true. His promises are true. The resurrection, it's real. It's true. Just let that be established in your soul. And if that's true, man, you have liberty to act the fool. You have liberty to just worship your brains out and just be like, what? He gave that to me? Of all people, he gave that to me? All this suffering, all this raging of the nations, that's not what this is all about? He changed all of that? That's what we're celebrating today. So you guys ready to worship the Lord? Like he's actually alive in this place? All right, let's stand up. Let's worship the Lord. Steve and Joy, come on up. I give you liberty to worship in this place as if he's actually alive. Let's have a good time. It's Easter Sunday. And after we do it, uh, because it's Easter, then I'll remind you that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. So, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you, God, just for what for a lot of us who have grown up in the church feels like the basics. You died. You died for the sins of humanity. You died so that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord does not need to be separated from you for one more second. You died so that all the sins of anybody who ever lived or ever will live were washed away in a single moment and no longer carry the power to separate us from the living God. Thank you, God, that you resurrected from the dead. Thank you that you rose and that you screamed to all creation that this death is not the end of the game, that this life is not the end of the game. God, thank you that you welcome us into eternal life because, Jesus, you're alive. You welcome us into eternal life now because, Jesus, you are alive. You welcome us into eternal life on the other side of death because now, Jesus, you are alive. So God, with our worship, we give you our best because you are alive, Jesus, and you are worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name.